today it is my honor to be speaking with world-renowned organ transplant doctor, professor, and surgeon Russell Strong. You may have been aware of Russell's work over many decades, pioneering transplants here in Australia, specifically liver transplants. Or you may have come across his profile because recently he's been in the media calling for uh, Australian uh, training hospitals, shall we say, to stop training mainland China surgeons for fear of uh, organ harvesting and those sort of controversies, which we will get into today. So first of all, let's start right at the top. Um, Professor, it is an honor to have you on the show. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Uh, Professor Strong, you are world renowned. Uh, can we start with that? Maybe that well, yeah, that's maybe overstating the case. I mean, there are various aspects of what I've done which have worldwide implications. Um, and, and therefore, in the surgical fraternity, not probably outside in the general community. How does it feel, if we could start with a bit of biography, how does it feel to be... To, to have that kind of impact on the world when, from what I've read of your story, you never intended to go into this kind of work. Are you surprised by what it's become? I don't know about surprised. I mean, the way one's life goes uh, from the background, I was a dentist first. I did qualified mm. in dentistry in university and I was fairly young at the time. I, In fact, when I'd qualified, I was only 20 and you, you've, I couldn't go out, I couldn't be actually registered to practice outside the Sydney Dental Hospital. Mm. And therefore, um, I was sort of a minor. You've got to be 21 to kill anybody. So I couldn't be registered. And prior to actually completing my dental degree, I had decided that I probably wanted to go further with regard to maxillofacial plastic surgery yes. uh, for injuries and deformities. And therefore, for that, I would need a medical degree. Mm. Now, there were two obstacles. One, I couldn't afford it. And two, I'd fallen in love. Mm. And I really didn't think that I could ask Judith, who did marry me, to come my wife and then ask her, she was a pharmacist, to continue working to help put me through medicine. Right. And lo and behold, this is exactly what happened 61 years ago, and we're still together. She's put up with me for all these years. Now, we actually went on our honeymoon to England hmm. and I graduated in medicine in London and then my surgical career set off from there, again, without a particular part of, of surgery because in those days, general surgery covered a widespread area. You did everything from head to toe, which is totally different nowadays because there's so many specialties and subspecialties. Anyhow, I fortunately, we were there for 13 years. We came back with two children, no money, a lot of degrees and a lot of experience. And I tell my wife that not everybody gets a 13-year honeymoon. Hmm. I'm not sure that she totally agrees with that. But that's the background. And when I came to Brisbane, to the Princess Alexandra Hospital, which, by the way, was at that time and still is one of the largest surgical hospitals in the country. And one of my jobs, jobs then was with regard to kidney transplants and yes. dialysis to actually perform procedures so people could go on to dialysis for the need. They needed a kidney transplant, but they're not always available like that. And yes. so they have to wait and they're on this dialysis 
And I used to be that. I did kidney transplants back in those days. And then I became very much involved with trauma, road traffic accidents, major liver injuries, and therefore developed a big, if you like, interest and one may say expertise with regard to blunt liver injuries. Now, Mm. we actually had here in Queensland the best results in the world because I was available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to go anywhere in the state and help retrieve people with blunt liver injuries. And the second point about this is I postulated that why did we have such a high rate of liver injuries in Australia compared with, say, the United States? Yes. Well, the reason is probably because we drive on the left side of the road with the driver on the right-hand side of the vehicle and the side impact, the liver's on the right side under the ribs, whereas in countries that drive on the right side of the road, that same impact hits the left side and they get a ruptured spleen. And so my posture, now I don't know whether this is true, but I still think that when we looked at the rate of liver inj- blunt liver injuries, now in America, of course, gunshot wounds and knife wounds and penetrating was big, whereas in Australia, it was blunt liver injuries. And of course, back in those times, almost before seatbelts and helmets and all the rest of it and drink driving, we had a high rate and therefore... I got very much involved with the liver. And then by the background of kidney transplants, started to evaluate whether we should be doing liver transplants, which had started off, there were only three units in the world, one in uh, Pittsburgh in the United States, one in Cambridge in the US, and one in Hanover in Germany. And that sort of set off in the early 80s. And so that's how I became involved and engrossed with performing liver transplants. And you were the first in Australia to do a liver transplant. I did the first successful orthotopic uh, liver transplant, which is back in, um, I started to develop the program in 84. So that was the first at the end of 84, beginning of 85. Um, So that was then. And then from that, one of the things that when I was in Pittsburgh, I went there for three or four months back in, in, in 84, it was obvious to me that, there were children, particularly with a, a condition called bilirubinuria, which is the most common reason for children to need a liver transplant. There are obviously not enough deceased children donors to meet the needs, yes. which is, of course, a good thing. It would be a tragedy yes. Yes. if so many children were dying of brain death yes. from in, for, for whatever reason to, to meet the needs of those. So I started to get my ideas of taking a deceased adult liver, Mm. cutting it down to a size that would fit into a baby and join all the vessels, which are totally different size, et cetera. So this sort of, it sort of became known, I think, as the Brisbane technique a little bit around the world, but that evolved and then went on to other aspects and I won't go into it, it's very complicated, and then performed the first successful living down a liver transplant in the world from a Japanese mother to her son in 1989. And it was really as a result of a lot of this that numbers of international surgeons wanted to come to Brisbane to train in liver transplants, mostly from Asia, but also from the USA and Europe. And over the next sort of decade or so, I think there were 85 plus surgeons who came for varying periods, mostly for a year, some for two and a couple for four years, came here before they went back 
to their own countries. Okay. And of course, we will get into China and everything that's happening there. But just with, quickly, with you, when you're plant, transplanting livers into young children, is it true also that you're transplanting them into very small babies? Sick babies. Yes. Um, now, the youngest um, of the gr group, and I, I haven't got the figure, I've been retired for a few years, so I'm not totally up to date, but I can tell you that the youngest that has been done was at 19 days of age. Wow. Two of them have been in the 20s. And I might point out all of those are still alive. But that was taking it the next step yeah. from what were putting them into, say, five-year-olds or et cetera, yeah. to put this more. You actually, the liver's made up of eight segments. You can't see them on the surface. Mm. But these were transplanted with just one segment, right. one of the eight segments of an adult liver into the baby. So... It's pretty complicated. Um, there are a lot of nuances in that whole process, but that was the background that um, happened. And once you put a very small piece of liver into a little tiny baby, does that then grow yes. and serve that baby's it does. body? The liver is the most regenerative solid organ in the body. Mm. So you can, in an adult, say you've got a cancer or from an injury, you can take sort of two-thirds wow. of the liver within... A year, it'll be normal size again. It doesn't grow a new lobe. What's there expands. It becomes, it regenerates what is there and can have normal function. So that allows us to do things that otherwise would not be possible. Okay. And if we think about what you were doing in the 80s, uh, this idea of what's happening in China now and Human Rights Watch has been blowing the lid on some of the organ harvesting over there. I was surprised to learn that you've been aware of this and, and speaking out about it since the 80s. Can you take us through what you noticed in the 80s? Well, well there, there were I became aware there were rumours that um, executed prisoners were being used as organ donors hmm. in China, and they were rumours. Um, and I really was concerned about this, particularly in relationship to accepting to train Chinese surgeons mm. in the techniques that we were doing, that they would go back to China. I insisted, therefore, that the uh, sponsoring institute or university had to, I had a signed document declaring that they would not go back to China and use executed prisoners. I never received one response, and therefore I refused to accept them. Why would you not receive a response when all you were asking was for a non-binding declaration? Well, I regard it as a binding declaration. I mean, they may not have, but to me it was. You sign a document to say, I agree not to use executed prisoners as organ donors. Because that sort of in that time, it was very much... Um, it was all. It, it was sort of vague. The whole thing was vague. Denials by China, and we can get into that. But so, I just insisted on that, and and felt that I couldn't be part of teaching people to do this sort of thing and use executed prisoners who were being uh, at that stage. I mean, I think it was back in about 1984. 
no, it was just before that. They had been doing experiments since the 1960s. And um, they be, uh, so it was in the, the first recorded case that I can find out was of an executed prisoner as an organo was 1978. Um, but there was a regulation promulgated in 1984 that allowed the bodies and organs of prisoners to be used at will by the state under certain conditions. And they began organ transplants from prisoners. That's criminals who'd done rape or murder or whatever else was. Mm. And then eventually, eventually started to do the same on citizens of conscience or dissidents, or they regarded as dissidents, which they put into the category of criminals. So that evolved slowly at first, but then it became paramount. Can, can, we, can I ask you uh, on the ethics of it? I know it seems self-evident to us, and we would be in agreement, of course, millions or billions of us around the world that this is wrong, but can we explore briefly why that is so wrong? If you take a secular humanist worldview, which many people do, unfortunately, they're throwing off a lot of the Christian heritage, they would say, well, we're just animals, it's survival of the fittest, it's um, the, the greatest good for the greatest number. Why is it so wrong and to your bone you really don't seem to like it at all this idea of of harvesting organs what is the real problem with it well i think part of the i mean one could go into the businesses of values between western democratic societies and china mm. you could spend a whole hours arguing this about what it is and for me Humanity and human rights should outweigh all the other things that are occurring, particularly right. for financial gain and benefit. Right. These people who were, I mean, if you said, because they made the point, oh, they're repaying society by agreeing to, well, we yeah. never had any evidence shown that these criminals who were executed and doing it were actually agreeing that the I give back to society. I've been a trip, therefore I'll pay back. That's what the right. Chinese kept telling us that was going on, and particularly when it became related to the dissidents, yeah. to the um, prisoners of conscience, that they were agreeing to pay back to society, but it wasn't. It was rubbish. We could never find any evidence to support that. They kept saying it. So you're saying, or if that's true, one's saying, well, these people are being criminalised for free speech, criminalised for religious reasons, criminalised just because they're a, a Uyghur Muslim, for example, therefore they're making them out as criminalised and therefore we can do with you and your body what we like. And one must remember in all this, there was a heck of a lot of torture with electric batons, beatings, etc., going on before this, mm. before they actually did it all trying to get them to agree that they were, inverted commas, criminals and dissidents, and therefore it is right for us, the Chinese, to do what we like with them. The reason I, why I, re I regard that as abhorrent and inhuman. Mm. So do I, but I, I, I... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go on. Well, I, I, I see it as abhorrent as well, but what I'm concerned about is the, the reasoning behind our Western values... Uh, why we might all consider that abhorrent and self-evident. We seem to be losing well, the core but, of that. Well, but but part of this is the law that has been made in China. Mm. These people get no 
chance of any argument. It's all put into things. Mm. It's it's suppression and oppression that's going on for these people. And we're not talking about a small few. We're talking one heck of a lot of people. I mean, I think uh, originally the, the Falun Gong, mm. which started in 1992, and by the end of the decade, some 70 million of them, they were regarded then virtually as criminals. And mm. the then president, um, Zemin, I think it was Z-E-M-I-N, he regarded them as an evil cult, right. and they were to be disenfranchised. They're to be actually genocide against them, and you are free to take their organs whenever you like. Now, if that's not criminal, you can talk about Western values and their Chinese, their culture is different. Well, so be it. Hmm. But I don't agree with it, and I wasn't going to train anybody to do what I regarded as abhorrent, full stop. Okay. Thank you for doing that. So where do we stand now? Sorry, we will get back to China in a moment. But where do we stand now with, with the similar kind of rhetoric is coming from our Western politicians, where they're encouraging us to divide our society over those who will comply with a lockdown or not comply or what have you? I feel like we're seeing similar things happen now. Sorry, I'm not quite sure I, the, the question. If we take the issue either of either lockdowns or we need to make sure that we're all vaccinated, some of us are refusing, some of us are complying, that's fine. But there is a general push from politicians to divide and say, well, you're bad. You're, we, we other them, we label them, and then we turn parts of our community against itself. Well, I think, I, I think what's happening in Western, and here in Australia, let's just take Australia, because that we know about. I think the lockdowns, the um, what's been happening is that the state premiers, for example, are generating fear. Mm. That's what they're generating for their own benefit. It's not for the. You can look around the world and see what's happened with lockdowns around the world. They've made no difference with regard to COVID nineteen. They've not improved the survival. The vaccination we now know is one of the things. But this lockdown of state borders, what happens? You get them standing up and saying, we've had so many uh, COVID cases today and we've had so many deaths, blah, blah, blah. These sort of, you know, everybody's nodding and saying it. Nobody then stands up and says, by the way, on the other side of the equation, we've had this many businesses go bust. We've had this many suicides because of mental distress, because of all this. All the children have lost school or universities, et cetera, et cetera. And how many people have had misdiagnosed or delayed diagnosis of cancers and other things, which meant that they were not being treated, et cetera. We've never heard that from them. Isn't it interesting? So how, how do you find in your travels uh, with Australian citizens, how are they responding to this? And I, I well, feel there like- ain't no travels. <laughs> I haven't got any travels. We're not traveling anywhere. No, I mean the people in your in your life, because the politicians are going a step further than even what you're saying. They're actually saying they're cloaking in a morality. Do the right thing. You are selfish. And I'm wondering how much our community is acquiescing to that kind of moralizing. Well, you see, if we keep hearing this is on medical advice. What we're doing is medical advice. Oh, yes, thank you. Would you show me the medical advice? No, you're not allowed to see the medical advice. Now, if it is so pure and perfect, that's the first thing I would be saying. Here it is. We've shown this and we'll show that and that. Not a word. 
Nowhere in any state that's locking down are they saying we actually have transparency on the medical advice. I have not seen it anywhere. And also, we suddenly seem in this country, from my perspective in my life in medicine, there were two sort of specialties. There were the infectious diseases specialists. Mm. And on the other side, we also had microbiologists who were the people on the, the, the infections that occurred in micro. We've now got a stack of epidemiologists. I didn't know they existed. Expert epidemiologists. They've come up from everywhere. Uh, what what is the difference there? Is it I, I my understanding epidemiologists to be more about mathematics and modelling and so on? You're right. I think it's not, and I think you're right there. It's not about clinically helping no. people. Yeah. It's about data management, and I think also all the projections that have been made with regard to this pandemic, a lot of them have been based on the Imperial College in London's yes. Um, data that they've collected and estimated what the death rate knew and what has happened. If you only go to Ferguson's, the guy there, he yeah. has been wrong for 20 odd years yes. and they're based ours on that. And when you hear that at the moment, they're saying Queensland, once we open the border here, we're going to have thousands of cases and their hospitals, well, our hospitals can't cope now. It's got nothing to do with COVID, but that's a different story. So, you know, this fear factor, this is what's being generated to make me feel important as a okay. politician. Okay, and this secret health advice, of course, now it takes us to China. This is the same thing China have obfuscated for years. Can you tell me anything about the nefarious things they've been doing to hide this since the 80s, the, the organ harvest? Well, they've actually fudged the data in many ways, but that that's later on. Mm. Firstly, there was the denial. There was any such thing. Mm. That went on and on, and it wasn't until... 2005, that two uh, uh, Canadians, um, Kilgore, David Kilgore, um, who was an who was a um, um, he was originally a politician, um, and D David Matas, a, a human rights lawyer, they did a study because they were asked to do it about what was happening in China, and they came up with a report which was reported in Epic News, and then they had a, a report that was called, um, oh, dear, it slips my mind at the moment, that, that actually um, found the truth about what was going on. Yes. And then suddenly, because the Olympics was coming up and China saw big problems, and suddenly the announcement came out, oh, yes, we've been, oh, but they've concerned, and there was all this slippery, 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 and it's yes. all sort of, and the person who did that, was a chap called Huang Jifu. Now, Huang Jifu, I got it out of context here. I was asked to go to China yes. in 1994 as a visiting professor guest lecturer yes. to the Guangzhou, which is just over the border from Hong Kong. Right. And he was the lead surgeon there. And when I arrived there, they got me to operate on a baby with a liver cancer and I did a resection demonstrated techniques and then I went on a round and I put the question to him about using executed prisoners as oh. organ donors, yes. forced organ donation. Uh, no, it didn't occur. No, it, it, oh, no, there's no such thing, blah, blah, blah. He rose to become the vice minister of health for China. And he was the one that made the announcement, oh, yes, we have. And it went on in the lands of 95% of them were 
from from um, uh, 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 executed prisoners. Never once did he mention dissidents or those of conscience. It was all about criminals. But then they classify as criminals those that are dissidents, and that means the Tibetans, the Christians, uh, the Falun Gong, the Uyghurs, etc. And so, and then the figures that came out subsequent to that, yes, they were going to stop it. And then you started to, people started to look at the figures. And also, we've got to remember in all this, the pharmaceutical industry, and we could go into the profits being made around the world from all this. And they could measure what immunosuppressive drugs were being used. And it far outweighed what they were agreeing was actually happening. And of course, it got hidden a bit because of the military hospitals. So it, 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 that's totally secret. You can't know anything about the military hospitals. And the cover-up uh, that was going on became evident and explored by various things, and particularly by ETAC, the um, uh, end of transplant abuse in China is ETAC. That's right. what it stands for. Right. And their investigation and report to the China Tribunal in London and that China Tribunal, which uh, Sir Geoffrey Nice QC uh, was the, um, the chairman, and they came out with a report at the end of 2019, um, which stated this. So how should we deal with this blatant travesty of human rights? As pointed out in the Tribunal, it Forced organ harvesting of all, sorry, the forced harvesting of organs from prisoners of conscience is a mantle of responsibility governments worldwide. However, their complete reluctance to offend China is evident from everything. Their recommendation and final observation, and it's a 600-page uh, book, doctors and medical institutions, industry and businesses, most specifically airlines, travel companies, financial services, businesses, law firms, and pharmaceutical and insurance companies, together with individual tourists, educational establishments, art establishments, they should be recognising that they are interacting with a criminal state. Wow. Full stop. I mean, it was absolutely... Now, this the number of, of, of witnesses at that tri particular tribunal, it's all recorded, mm. and subsequently there is now been the... Uyghur Tribunal, which is mm. Sir Jeffrey's still doing, I've watched 38 hours of the first part of that. The second part is finished. I haven't seen that yet to come up with it. And I'll tell you what brings tears to your eyes when you see what these people have been subjected to and their relatives. So human it's rights horrible. abuses are continuing just under different oh, groups. Ab yes, absolutely. There's no question. They keep denying it. See, Huang, he denied it back and forth, saying, oh, no, it's only this. Oh, we're going to actually phase it out over the next five years. Then he comes out in 2013. He admits to The Lancet, one of the great journals in the world, in, London, in England, The Lancet, yes, we're still doing it. 95% of organ donors are executed prisoners. Mm. So first he goes, and then he turns out to be the great saviour and he hood, hood, hoodwinked half the world, saying we're phasing it out, etc. And I can tell you straight away, this is not true. 
I personally know of patients, not from Australia, from other countries, who've gone to China on a set date, set when the execution is going to occur, to get their liver transplants. One of them is an adult and one of them is a child. I know specifically, and there are others. So it's not phased out. Full stop. So is this why you've made a recent call that we need to take drastic measures and simply refuse to surgically train any mainland Chinese? Well, that, that, that surgical training was back then. I'm going back to the, to the 80s and 90s. I mean, I've been retired since uh, here in Brisbane 2013. I went to Malaysia for two years to help them set up liver transplantation because I trained a number of Malaysian surgeons. Mm. And I went there for several years to do that. But it, it, it's, it's, one knows that it's continuing, mm. and yet we're hoodwinked into thinking of it. Now, if you start to ask and look at the, the government, what are the governments around the world? What are they doing about it? Um, the, I've got here um, that a number of countries have now, of course, the reports put in and what they say and what they do is another matter. Mm. But certainly... In Australia, there was a parliamentary inquiry um, which came up with, um, I've forgotten the word I, I want to use here, um, they came up with uh, delay tactics. We mustn't upset them. Yes. And when you get ex-prime ministers who we have to admit are a pain in the butt once they become ex-prime ministers and being experts in everything else, Yes. Number one, Paul Keating named the CCP as the greatest um, government in the last 30 years. And wow. secondly, now this is true. He said that. And secondly, he said that Western values do not apply to China. Oh. Western values do not apply to China. In other words, you can ignore all this. And on top of this, um, Kevin Rudd, who I believe speaks Mandarin, talks highly, but never mentioned any of the abuse. Mm -hmm. That's put in the background. Don't mention that. It's a bit like Faulty Towers. Don't mention the war. <laughs> it's denied and put aside. We mustn't mention it. And Australian companies are really outspoken in saying, we must not upset the Chinese. We need to have this. We need to have that. Mm -hmm. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of my country kowtowing to the Chinese in what they're doing. Have you seen the interview with Yeomin Park, the defector from North Korea who went on Joe Rogan, and she describes no. what it was like to defect? It's horrifying to hear her talk about the only reason the North Korean atrocities continue is because of support from China. Well... No, I haven't seen that, and I didn't know that, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, the problem with a lot of this is I did a, an interview with the, um, with the BBC, it must be six months ago, mm. and they actually um, contracted a cameraman from Australia to come and film me here in my residence and do an interview and do like we're doing here mm. for a, both uh, for... Uh, e, for the TV and for radio. Mm. And this was some months ago, and I kind of had nothing. I hadn't heard anything for a while. And 
um, I contacted the chap that did the interviews and he said um, he was very happy with what they'd finally put together, etc. But the BBC knocked it back. What? Now, subsequently, I've learnt that it was probably the BBC Beijing even said, don't you dare put this on. Uh... So in other words, the influence is everywhere. Yeah. They get in everywhere. They're all around the world. And the, the tragedy of a lot of this, and also there's one person in China, I won't name which city or where it is, um, a surgeon, whom I know. And I, wrote, I sent him an email, and I think this was my mistake first, because I don't know if you send mail, if you send a letter to anybody, whether it gets intercepted. Mm. But... I asked him four questions. I wanted just yes or no. Did he know these, what I'm talking to you about now? I've never heard from him since. How long ago he was, was so that? excited. He was so excited because his son has just graduated a PhD in uh, MIT in Boston and blah, blah, and he was so excited. Oh, we could get together, blah, blah, blah. Never heard a word since. He's been shut up, I'm sure. There's no doubt. So these are the sort of things, as you said, the pressure of people defecting because they then get onto their family. They threaten them, what they're yeah. going to do to their families, but not just in China. Yeah. Here, Drew Pavlov. You know Drew Pavlov? No. Oh, I'm surprised. Drew Pavlov, a student here at University of Queensland, he had a campaign at the UQ with regard to the Hong Kong rights about China taking over, and he had this. Right. He was bashed up here at the University of Queensland by Chinese people in this country, bashed him up, and then because of his views, the University of Queensland dismissed him from his course. Uh. And then on 11 charges, now he did a few stupid things. Now, I've met Drew. Yeah. And he is a bit of a, an outgoing yeah. radical, but he's a student. As we all know, people do things. And yet they eventually came back and, and only took two. They only dismissed him for six, six months. But all of this was because the pressure put on UQ by China and the Chinese ambassador. And this is going on everywhere in this country, and we're disregarding it. Oh, don't upset the Chinese. Oh, they're worth so much. And I yeah. would say... The, I get so annoyed with Twiggy Forrest. I mean, he's making billions out of them, yes, and yet yes. he's saying what a wonderful people and things they're doing. Yeah, yeah. It's like the it's, climate change. He's off over there yeah. at the climate change yeah. in his private aircraft, burning up fuel all over. And secondly, yeah. he's making a mountain out of these renewables, etc. So, you know, you take it, these people and think, hang on, do you sleep well at night? Uh, so, look, it's well established that China owns our universities here. But what I'm most concerned about is you said it was Chinese Australians that bashed up Drew, not some CCP spy. Well, no, sorry. They were Chinese. I use the word Australians because they were at the university. They came in. They, whether they were students at the university or because this was happening, I don't know exactly. When I said Chinese Australians, I used the term because so many students at that stage were from it. And again, I'm, I am very upset 
with regard to our universities taking fee-paying students and not allowing Australians into certain courses. And I've actually been outspoken at the University of Queensland with a previous Vice-Chancellor about the Confucian Institute mm, and fee-paying students, etc., that they're taking when Australians can't get in. And then they say, oh, but we don't get enough money from the Commonwealth. In other words, push the buck, but takes $1.2 million a year in salary. But, uh, Sorry. Uh, half doesn't it doesn't meet the pub test. Yeah, half my half half of me is Chinese and half is from New Zealand. I, I'm aware of the Chinese culture. They they live here in Australia, half my that side, are fiercely, fiercely loyal to the CCP. And I can imagine that the the um, discontent within the community there, the Chinese government could rely upon the Chinese Australians here to to wave the flag for them. They're just reading yeah, the Global well, Times. And, 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 so and of course, if they don't, their relatives back there or yeah. somewhere else are in trouble. And I can understand it's the fear factor that actually they're <clears throat> propagating in those circumstances. So, Russell, what have you called for in terms of stopping training right now? What should we be doing? Well... I don't want to go at the moment. David McGiffin, who's a cardiac surgeon mm. at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, was originally an a, 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 a intern of mine. He went into cardiac surgery, Prince Charles, won a Fulbright scholarship, was in America, did the first heart transplant in Queensland, here in Brisbane, then went back to America and is now in Melbourne. He and I have been... Um, canvassing, I might use the word, the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons with regard to this, about no surgeons from mainland China, and sadly one has to now include Hong Kong mm. because that is part of mainland China, mm -hmm. uh, coming to Australia. We are complicit. If we train people in techniques and all the rest in transplant, and then they go back and do what I'm talking about, then we are complicit in that. And certainly, I think uh, the French have come out very strongly and more or less said we must not train any further Chinese surgeons in transplant procedures. Now, a lot of places in the world, have been, and there's all sort of words and things, but nothing actually really happens. Mm. And we're at the moment not finding it easy for the college to actually uh, agree mm. along these lines. They're working on it at the moment and one has to await. So I can't give you the results of our uh, efforts and their deliberations. But I feel very strongly and that our journal, it's publishing of all the overseas publications in the Australian New Zealand Journal of Surgery. Mm. The vast majority of overseas ones are all from China. This is not on transplant. This is otherwise. One says, well, hang on. The doctors in China who may not be doing the procedures, they know what's happening. They are part of it because all the labour camps and everything where the people have to be tested and have their scans and blood tests and everything else, yeah. they know what's going on. They're complicit. Yes. Right. So one's saying, well, hang on, we don't agree with what's happening. Therefore, why should we be training and allowing them to be part of it because that makes us complicit. I have a couple of quotations, and I think this is very important. Please. 
It was Edmund Burke, and it's way back. Yeah. Many hundreds of years. For evil to flourish takes good men to do nothing. Right. For evil to flourish takes good men to do nothing. And Albert Einstein, who I think most people know, who was regarded probably as the greatest scientist since Isaac Newton, mm. the world in, is in as great a peril from those who tolerate or encourage evil as those who actually commit it. <clears throat> now, I think these are very relevant statements to what we're talking about here today. Mm. And Haile Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia from 30 to 74, stated, and I quote, throughout history, it has been the inaction of those who could have acted, the indifference of those who should have known better, the silence of the voice of justice when it mattered most has made it possible for evil to triumph. I think those three statements very much embody and are embraced in what I'm talking about. In other words, when, if we don't stand up and say something, we're complicit. Mm. And sadly, our governments are not because it all comes that money is more important than humanity. <clears throat> morals. We're seeing this with the NBA and so on in the US who are bound to China, Disney as well. Exactly. Russell, how can people stand up though? Because if we go back to you in the 80s, you were smeared and you know, people were writing articles comparing you to Mengels from Nazi Germany. And <laughs> you know, right? How did you find that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and all you were doing was saving babies and doing liver transplants. Yeah. So, look, you've been through the persecution. Uh, it must no, be. No, I was never persecuted. I was never oh, persecuted. Sorry. Not like we're talking there. I may have been denigrated in a way, yeah. verbally or in the press, and, and even in the in the medical journal of Australia, which, which was yes. where that particular yes. thing. When I was, uh, and, and also I was, I was credited as being a bush ranger, yeah, by the minister for health in Victoria. Uh, I suppose the only satisfaction in that was that we went on to be successful, but he, like most politicians, faded into obscurity. Oh, the best part of the interview. You just said it there. Most politicians <laughs> faded into obscurity. No, okay. But look, the denigration that, we, that you went through, you've been through it before. How hard is it for your colleagues who are in medicine now, still practicing, to stand up against an establishment that wants to keep them silent on any matter, whether it be organ harvesting or in, or in lockdowns? That's, that's an excellent question, and I don't think I can answer it, except to say we keep talking about freedom of speech, freedom of everything else. But you're right, that's being suppressed at the moment. We're seeing evidence from universities like mm. uh, the James Cook University and mm. the University of New South Wales suppressing because they've been pushed by China or somebody else, or you mustn't say that or you mustn't do this. We're going through a, a, a process of, of wokeism, of cancel culture and all these other words, which are just words, which worry me in a sense. But I reckon that that's going to all fade in the future because people are going to realise it's bunkum. None of it is. People want to embrace, throw away history as it is. You can't. We should know our history, what we've done wrong, when we've done it wrong, and admit to it. But we can't change what has happened in the past. But we can change what's happening now or into the future.
by standing up and doing it. Now, how you actually do it, mm. it's difficult when you've got people like Dan Andrews in your state oh, who's God. about to make a law that gives him supreme power that even the CCP don't have almost. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that, that's, that, that's equivalent to that, and I find it absolutely astonishing that this should be accepted. by a, Now, it's not being accepted. I know there's a lot against it, mm. but whether it's going to get through and you've got a few in the upper house who can be persuaded with a bit of this and a bit of that and everything else. If but I can't bought. believe that he would actually venture yeah. to believe that this was appropriate in a democracy like Australia, and particularly what Victorian Victorians have been through in the last two years. He tried to do it last but year when he tried to ban pre-crime, pre-emptory arrest. Look, he's, he's very bold. He's a very good politician. Yes. Uh, but... I mean, we, we really shouldn't be getting back to the China. We sh it's a belligerent regime. Mm. It's going to bully all the time to try and, and they do it on the basis of economics. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, there was a study done by two chaps. They're from um, Prague in Czechoslovakia on the economics of all this and the number of companies around the world, not just the money being made in China from using the organs, for foreigners to be transplanted. And we're talking about a billion dollars or something a year. That's what is apportioned to that. Yeah. But all the companies around the world that are part of the process, pharmaceutical companies, yes. medical devices, etc., yes. they're making billions. They don't want it to stop. They're more interested because it's money. So it's, it, it, it's a much wider sphere that it's occurring than just what I'm talking about and the complicity of... Western nations with this, I mean, it's going to come back to bust in the end. They're going to, they're going to regret. And I think those quotations I've just given you are very much, and, and talk, I think it was Margaret Thatcher who said, we've had too many sort of uh, conferences, too many sessions, we need to do something. As you say, how do you do it? Somebody like me, I'm a nothing. I can't do anything. I don't have any power except to talk and say that and possibly encourage others to look at it in its true reality, because it's real. It's real. And when you see and hear those people on the China Tribunal and the Uyghur Tribunal, I had tears in my eyes. I mean, the beatings, the deprivation, the starvation, and all this of these people, to try and get them to admit, because their beliefs, to throw that out, mm. just so they can get a bit of freedom. I, I mean... It, it's heartrending, and I can't believe that we can say that they keep saying oh, Chinese culture is different. I don't believe that. Okay. Most of the Chinese, I'm not racist. I trained Australian Chinese. I trained Singapore, Malaysian, Hong Kong Chinese in surgery. Yep. So it's not people can say, "Oh, he's a racist." I'm not. I've trained these, and I have very, very many. Chinese who are, I regard as friends. Mm. However, I cannot stand up and allow and, 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 and not criticise the Chinese regime, the CCP. So what does it look like for people in the profession? Should they be speaking out? Should they be blowing the lid? Should they be refusing to do, train people well, refusing I, to? Well, that, that's my belief because I think we as a community the medical side of this is just one aspect, as I've said. Mm. 
you can go into the economic side and, and trade and everything else and what's happened. Um, that we shouldn't kowtow to them. That they're pushing us to do certain things and demanding. They started that off through very minor things, and everything anybody says against them, they regard as lies. They put they with regard to the China trade, they just said they're all actors. Mm. They reckon they're actors at that tribunal that are saying, I was this and happened. It's not. And you've only got to go to um, Dr. Toti, T-O-H-T-I. Mm. He was forced as a doctor way back, I think it was in, 19, in the early 90s, he didn't know what it was about. He was taken out to what became known as the killing field in a van. And he was told by his boss, what you've got to do is you've got to cut the organs out of these people when they throw it in the back of the thing. Ooh. He was horrified and he did it. And he, he did what he was told, but he didn't understand. He then escaped from China and was in London. He's a bus driver. And he spoke of that and told the story. He'd never told it to anyone before. He stood up at that tribunal and said, what I've done and how he was forced to do it. it, it it's, it's, I mean, it, it's heartrending to think of these sort of situations where some of them are forced into doing it um, by a regime that I have to say is an evil regime. You cannot get away with mm. saying anything else. Um, I mean, what's happened to them in history against China and Chinese all right, I understand that. But that sure. uh, so many people can say the same thing. It doesn't mean that they have to become evil and say that the culture, Chinese culture, they say, oh, that's different. Confucius, you know, oh, this is different. A human being is a human being. Well, and well, the so second thing is, they hide, why it's hidden is they virtually cremate all these afterwards. So there's no evidence that they've been cut open, their organs taken. Okay. And the relatives in that, you know, are just told, oh, they suicide. That was the other thing. That, the chap that um, Zeman, that one that's set up the, against the Falun Gong originally, yeah. he said if people die, say they've committed suicide. And, and you I can't mean, see he the body. was more or less yeah. saying, well, yes, yeah. because it's all done, all these labour camps, these big things. And, of course, again, I think now the USA has started to stop taking some of the um, uh, the garments and everything that are being made yeah, good. by the Uyghurs in their forced labour. I mean, that's slavery. We, mm -hmm. It's another forced labour is slavery. They say it's re-education. Mm -hmm. That's what the Chinese say. It's slavery. That's what it is. Um, they have no rights at all. There's no freedom. Everything is, you know, controlled from on top. <clears throat> Uh, Russell, how do you get people, broader question, how do you get people to act ethically like we've been suggesting when self-interest is so strong? Because let me put a, a hypothetical to you. If you were dying and you really needed a liver transplant now, tomorrow, there is one place in the world you can go and get it, no problem. Very do difficult. Yeah. But, well, <laughs> the first thing about that is um, I, as an individual or as a doctor, Mm. therefore are complicit with what's happening there. Mm. If a person needs a liver drain, and some of the people that have gone, if we take Australians that have been to get transplants, mm. the, my understanding is the vast majority 
are immigrants to Australia that have gone overseas. They're not actually, and, and that's a, a broad, because when are you an immigrant? We're all immigrants, most of yeah, us here, yeah. even though I was born and bred here, mm. but we're from our ancestors. Yeah. So therefore, a lot of that, but they have to get to there, they have to, and when they come back, they need treatment. Sometimes there's a lot of stuff-ups and they have to be fixed. Yeah. Because liver can liver transplants is big, big time. So are hearts and lungs. We're talking about and the complications to occur. So we as a medical community back here, we have to look after them. Now, Israel was the first place to firstly ban them to go to China for a transplant. And yeah. secondly, if they did, they would get no reimbursement oh, and they would get no uh, rebates for their immunosuppression. They had to do it all off themselves. So it became, you know, obligatory that you wouldn't be supported. So I think in Australia, and that has come up as one of the things to say, well, if you do go, that's on your own back. You are, it's going to cost you. You're not going to get any help from us or the community because you are supporting what is an illegal practice. All right. So the ethical conundrum... It does. So the ethical conundrum of the trolley problem, you know, the trolley problem, there's another version of that is the surgeon's dilemma where you have one healthy person with five organs and five who are dying and you can kill the one, distribute the organs and save the five. Is it ethically okay to kill the one to save the five? It sounds like we're coming down on the side of no, that's never okay. Well, I've, I can't justify that in no way whatsoever. I mean, we have in this country also people looking at laws of end of life, mm. what you're going to do and whether you can actually have the medical profession help you pass on quickly. Mm. In a way, withdrawal of treatment for people at the end stage of their life. Mortality is 100%. We're yes. all going to die. <laughs> Good point. So mortality. There are lots <laughs> of things. If you don't die from that, you're going to die. So that's one aspect, but that's part of the human organ. Yes. It runs out. It wears out. Yep. And I'm saying I'm in my mid-80s now and I'm obviously wearing out. I don't think as well as I could. My memory's not as good. I can't remember names, right. you know, so I'm getting on a bit. But, you know, that's part of the human race and, and other animals. So that's yes. part of this thing. But to take a person's life supposedly to save others, do we glorify that? I mean, we make heroes and give Victoria Crosses to those Mm. who go in at a battle on the spur of the moment to save their fellow ones, that's different to what yeah. we're talking about here, yeah. to intentionally kill somebody because you reckon you're going to save five others. No, doesn't make yeah. sense. Because, okay, we're doing exactly that, though, with the lockdowns, is my point, with preventing medical oh. treatment, border transfer exemptions and so on. But it's worth it because the community, you know, all of that. Yeah, I suppose with all this, I mean, the border lockdowns, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, look at Queensland at the moment. We're sitting here. They say, oh, but look, we've saved. We've stopped. Oh, because of all this, you know, we haven't had too many cases, too many deaths. Oh, but once we open the border, there's going to be thousands of the blah, 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 blah. So what? They keep saying, well, we've got the capacity, we've got the bed. But if you actually look at the statistics of what's happened, and the deaths, particularly since the vaccination, mm. in the IC, intensive care units in Sydney, with all that going on, 
virtually 100% of those in there hadn't been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So we've now known that the vaccination helps. All the evidence from all the studies around the world show that lockdown doesn't work. It doesn't stop it. It doesn't make any difference. And then you get these ridiculous things where, you know, once you stand up, you've got to put the mask on, you know, um, but and when you're out of your drink and, and you, you get all this going on mm. and it, it beats the, the the pub test in so many ways, there are the people down in northern New South living in a tent down Lismore Way who are Queenslanders who have been doubly vaccinated and they're refused exemptions to come back mm. for whatever reason. Um, and the lady the other day, three children living in a tent in Lismore, she eventually gets after her, gets exemptions, but she has to fly from Ballina to Sydney to get a plane, to fly to sit Brisbane, and then be put in two weeks quarantine, pay for a car to be transported up and a cat or something else. And the only reason that a lot of these and that little boy and all the others is because of the media. The media has come out and the politicians say, oh, oh, we didn't know, and then they get an exemption. You can't, to me, everybody up here is just not laughing. Laughing is a sick joke mm. of what is happening. And our politicians, oh, this, oh, we're saving it. We're saving people. And a lot of people believe it. What, what do you make of the weaponization of health? Uh, obviously, you're not happy with the way they're using health to do lockdowns. But what if you actually have some evidence to, to support weaponization? So you just mentioned vaccines driving down mortality rates. That's how they then justify. I've got people um, contacting me who can't get medical treatment because they've only had one dose. They haven't had their second dose yet or they haven't had their first dose at all or they've previously had COVID and they feel safer to not have it or whatever. We're now denying medical treatment here in Melbourne in suburban GP clinics and in two emergency departments where they were turned away with a sick child because of the lack of double vax. But there is data, as you say, to support, well, we need to get everyone vaccinated, but you know, lower mortality rates. Is it still wrong then to force people into medical treatments or is it okay? No, I think, no, it's not. Yeah, forcing people to have a vaccination, I, I think overall it's been accepted that we shouldn't force except those that are in a position like in uh, aged care facilities, in medical things, et cetera, where you really need to have that mm. as part of your uh, performance in your job. Mm-hmm. Others who did, and, and one sees it in America, the backlash of, of vaccination, uh, a forced vaccination. I keep saying to people, and yesterday, we had a small group at the Melbourne Cup, sort of lunch, etc., and we're all in our 80s. Yep. And we're all in our 80s because of vaccination. Right. As children, tetanus, polio, whooping cough, measles, etc. That's why we're allowed to be here. And you've got to walk around the harbour at Hobart and look at the, the plaques of the children dying under two years of age from infectious diseases back in the late 1800s, etc., Vaccination is probably one of the greatest advances that the human race has had developed. Mm. And therefore, it's allowed us to get to now. It's produced problems because we've got an aged population getting more and more that's going to be needed to be looked after in the future. Mm -hmm. And who's going to pay for it and who's going to do it? But that's a different question. But that's why we're here now. 
Now, with regard to COVID and saying forced vaccination, I think probably from my own personal perspective is say, I mean, and I've been doubly vaccinated, my wife has, et cetera. I think it is appropriate to do it because I feel I don't want to, if it helps, and I'm not sure that it does, but if it helps stop me getting it and infecting somebody else, I'm not worried about myself because I know mortality is 100%. I've got to go sometime. But that I don't want to cause problems for other people. If that is true, I'm not sure of this, but it would seem to me that if I can avoid getting it and transmitting it to somebody else, that is a good point. That is a good part of society that we should be. So we should ma- ma- mandate? I mean, I've got people now who can't teach no. in primary school. They're losing their jobs. Uh, yes, I, 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 that's one that worries me in a way because the children don't, they're the ones that we've shown in this COVID-19 is mm. probably the most immune. They, they're actually not part of the problem. We know mm. that the other end of the scale, the age people are, mm. but of mm. course a lot of the deaths we have to remember called COVID deaths were actually people who contracted COVID but had other comorbid conditions, which they probably died on, but they were classified as being caused by COVID. I'm not sure that we know exactly what proportion of that is, but, yes, I mean, it's more likely to occur. And from my understanding of the people that have had COVID, it's pretty nasty, and they it goes on for a long time afterwards, the repercussions of having had it. Coming to force, I think, in our society... We have to accept if we're a free society, Mm. then people are at liberty to say, I won't have it. That's part of our society that we accept. There may be some you need to mandate because of the influence of them transferring it or giving it to somebody who are vulnerable for whatever other reason. So I think with regard to teachers and children, um, I'm not quite sure that it's justified to force them to actually having it before mm. they're allowed to teach. <clears throat> yes, this is a problem that I, I've been discussing lately because I've got a lot of, uh, you know, Pfizer's now got approval in the US from five to 11-year-olds. Yes, yes, um, yes. And, and your state is, is one thing, but in my state, uh, I've got an optometrist at my house for lunch yesterday who's just lost her job because she can't um, work anymore. And they're now going to be making our children at some point, they're already doing it up from 12 to 16, soon it will be mandated and then they're going to try and, get me to vaccinate my six-year-old uh i'm finding it i'm finding a salami what do you call it a salami method slice by slice whether it's right or wrong what we accept as a society is changing and i've been fascinated to talk to you because you've seen so much of it and you've seen the medical profession treat you terribly and then turn around and say you're the greatest thing on planet earth you know so i'm wondering what i don't i haven't been treated terribly i mean it was it was well, a minor blip in the in the whole thing, and yes, you know, one took a bit of jar from it, but but um, you know that that that's past, and that's the time. I don't I don't sort of um, it may have been a bit of trouble at the time. I mean, to be called somebody like Mengele, you know, who who was one of the most uh, horrible what he did in the prison camps in by the Nazis in the Second World War, but you know, that, so what? But, but I'm you, not you talking. See, but I. I was, you see, some of the things, the projections for the future, um, to to say what's going to happen in the future really is an exercise in futility. 
Mm. I mean, because so many famous people have said something that's, um, you know, probably the greatest scientist since Isaac Newton was um, Kelvin, Lord Kelvin, who said, man will never fly. Mm. There is no future in this wireless business. And x-rays will be shown to be the fraud that it is. Wow. Now, there was one of the greatest signs of all trying to project the future. So to do that, now, I was also had to put up with a certain person who was actually a lawyer and an ethicist said that for me to transplant children was I was going to produce stunted dwarfs. Yes. And one of the great moments in my life after that was, and this was published widely, and I think it was in the Medical Journal of Australia as well, was when we had, it was five years after the first baby's liver transplant I did in Brisbane, there was this big thing with a lot of children there. And one of the television guys came up to me. He said, Professor Strong, can you point out which of the children have had a transplant? I can't tell the difference. Hmm. And I said, like Clint Eastwood in the movie, you've made my day and Hmm. walked off. He wondered what I was talking about because he hadn't seen it. But it was to sort of say, great, he can't tell the difference between children that haven't had a transplant and those that had because I was told if I did that. Now, speculation, and maybe I was right or, well, I turned out to be right, but maybe I I could have been wrong. But those are the sort of things that come up and you you just have to accept it. I don't know what that's in question. Well, well, it's it's not that. Um, look, I, I just don't know how to cancel these professionals who talk to me. You know, for example, we've got Professor Nikolai Petrovsky from um, Flinders University, who I've had on the show multiple times, who's invented an incredible um, vaccine, Novavax, Covax nineteen. Yep, yep. And he's he's lost his position because he's vaccinated himself with his own vaccine, but doesn't want to get the mRNA ones, and so he's now ostracised. Uh, and he's being squashed by CSLA and our federal government. They don't want to know anything about his va- his his vaccine. And these people like this are saying uh, the society is narrowing and, and they don't know where they fit anymore. And I, I'm just some kid in Melbourne. I don't know what to tell them. But I feel like things well, are changing before my eyes and I don't know what to make of it. This is historical. Well, you, you're not able, none of us are able to answer everything. I mean, those sort of uh, examples that you've given to me exemplify part of the culture that's happening nowadays in our country, mm. which in my growing up and through my life just wouldn't have occurred. I mean, everybody, <laughs> it was so much ambivalent and so much, everything was good and blah, 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 and we went through. I, I mean, I've been fortunate to live in probably the best time in history and certainly in this country. Mm. And so, all right, we've been through hard times in the Second World War and mm. et cetera and all that. But we've been very fortunate, and what worries me, and it's a little bit along, it's not quite the same, is that we're now being overtaken by these small group who are abusing really everything, mostly by writing and on Twitter, on uh, what do you call all that stuff? I don't do it. I actually don't do it. You're looking at me. I've only had this laptop. I bought last year. It's the first time in my life. Okay. I have a phone. If I showed it to you, you would laugh. <laughs> Everybody laughs because I can make a call and I receive one. Yeah. And everybody's walking around running into each other looking at these things. And I won't change my direction in the corridor and run into them and say, watch where you're going. The world will still go around 
Mm. Each day, whether you've got your phone or you have it, and therefore one can take technology. Yes, it's great advances. It's not always progress. Progress is change for the better. And yes, a lot of it is change for the better, but a lot of it isn't. And people have lost the ability to communicate by word of mouth, facial expression, tone of voice. Mm. You tell a patient bad news, you don't send them an email and say you're going to be dead in three months. You sit down, hold their hand, and they know mm. by the expression in their, that you've got bad news. And you do it that way. That's what, as a doctor, I grew up to expect that I had to deal and times I had to give bad news and tell someone that their husband and, and, and son have died in a crash in an, after coming out. You know, those are the sort of things that one lives through and therefore the human being and the human life, you know, you, you respect so much. And therefore, in these circumstances where people are being uh, virtually denigrated and losing jobs because of that, I think some of them are wrong not to have the vaccine. Let me say that. Sure. I think it's... As I've pointed out, we're here today, a lot of us, because of vaccination. And the anti-vaxxers, you know, they'll go, they'll grab anything. So with all that, I can understand, but I can also understand and accept that some people don't want to. And if they're losing their jobs, one starts to think, well, what are the administrators, the politicians doing about this? Mm. Are they being complicit? Are they, I mean, they can do something about it. They can change the law. They're they causing can make it, it that you Russell. Can, Hmm? They're causing it. Dan Andrews is mandating everything. Ah, well, Dan yeah. Andrews, I mean, if you want to, he's, he's learned from China. He knows, he, he's, he's actually, wasn't only the Belt and Road, yeah. you know, that he was, but I mean, he's, what he's doing is actually what we're talking about today yes, that yes. shouldn't be happening, what's happening in China. Because if you're allowed him to go on mm. doing what he's doing, what is next? What is next mm. may be, He's got somebody and he'll want to have somebody executed so they can get an organ transplant for one of his kids or something. I don't know. Yeah. Look, I mean, long I'm before, No, no, I know. But long before vaccine mandates from Dan Andrews came along, he was mandating other things. He would say, no, know, not in I this know. state. Yeah. I know. I know. that. Therefore, we, we, we have to accept. Um, and the whole fear campaign that's been put in with this COVID is, 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 is very concerning because when one says... Well, show me the medical advice. Mm. Not one state that I know of has actually produced the stated medical advice on which they based their decisions. You may. I haven't. I've been watching. <clears throat> I haven't. Russell, what are your predictions for the future? I know you don't like predictions. We just talked about that. But is there some, are you hopeful for the future of medicine? Or do you, with the um, the pharmaceuticals and the, uh, you know, that whole thing, there seems to be a lot of influence. I mean, I'd love to be Pfizer right now. They're doing well. Every human on the planet must have your product. Um, are, you, are, you, are you seeing, are you seeing uh, a bright future for medicine or even just the trust in medicine seems to be eroding? If you look at NIH and Fauci in the US, there's some real problems. I know, I know, I know. Yes, I mean, that that whole thing of Fauci and the, the upgrading or what is a gain function business yep. with the, 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 the Wuhan laboratory, etc. And I mean, one sees that sort of here. And if you look at the, the denial by China with, with the proper COVID investigation, mm. and also the same has happened up till now with this um, uh, transplant industry, and I use that term in big terms, in China, then that's of great concern. 
I, my feeling is at the moment, I, I'm not going to predict. My feeling is, and I hope I'm right, is that China is just about starting on the down run. Oh. Yes. I think there's a lot of that's coming through that they're starting to economically get problems. Yes, yes. Um, and also there is, despite the coercion and everything else, there is just from what I've, I won't say here, what I sort of know, is that there will be that Z probably is going to be in trouble to get in the next thing at the end of next year. I mean, that's a prediction. If I go to my grave and I'm right, you can say, you know, that bloody Russell Strong, he was right. Yeah. But if I go and I said he didn't know it, I can say, well, predictions are useless, yes. I mean, uh, but I, I have a feeling that, but that's, that the, the the Western societies, I think, are folding in some ways, not just to that, but to other things with this culture that's going on that a few are driving it. I mean, this business of the knee, bending the knee, and when For the South African BLM. cricketer, yes, yeah, the BLM, yes, but the the all the cricketers and the footballers and everything getting bend the knee beforehand. Mm, mm. If that happens, I refuse to watch the match. Full okay. stop. I think it's stupid, ridiculous. Okay. And that particular one that from South Africa, he actually is, is himself black. His two siblings are black. His mother was black. Yeah. And yet he's been condemned because he didn't bend the knee as a race. Oh, you see what I mean? It, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's doing something <clears throat> that means nothing. It doesn't mm. mean anything. They may feel better because they do it, but what change does it make? It's not making any change. And if therefore, you, if you're going to introduce and do something with the proposition that this is meaningful and is going to cause change, that's a different matter. But does anybody in the world think that taking the knee before a football or a cricket match or a tennis, soon they'll be doing it in tennis, before you actually go, oh, you've got to take the knee. <laughs> Clearly some do think it doesn't. Look, <laughs> Am I stupid there? Am I right or wrong? Yeah, look, if you're interested in a bit of reading, if you look at classical um, Arist Aristotelian ethics, so Aristotle said virtue ethics is pre-existent from consequentialism and utilitarianism and so on. It's a return of Aristotle's virtue ethics, but it's debased. So you have now people virtue signaling, appealing to this deep ingrained sense of virtue and character in all of us, but they're doing it from a debased moral point and they're signaling rather than acting. It's it's fascinating. Well, that's right. And it, and it doesn't, it, it make, may make them feel better, but it doesn't impress the, the majority of the, the people that are looking at them. Because then one would say, fine, what else have you done to follow this virtue signaling that you've done? What else are you doing to help those people that are underprivileged or whatever it may be? Oh, then you won't hear too much. They feel virtue because they've done it. They're here. They haven't actually done anything. So, Russell, to go back to my last question about um, uh, trust in your, in your profession, because one of the biggest problems with mandating vaccines for as one small example is that there are many of us who are vaccinated up the hill. You know, my family is yeah. one of them. 
But when you see so much suppression of information and you see so much corporate interest, you start to see people now saying, look, I've been on board for everything the medical profession has said, but now I'm seeing this. That's horrific with Fauci or whoever. How can I trust the other stuff? I'm worried that we're undermining general trust in the community, whether it be towards vaccination programs or, or the profession in general. I think you're right. Uh, and I'm not sure how. I mean, you come out of it and I keep thinking, I'm just an old fuddy. <laughs> the good old days. I, I still go to to surgical ground rounds at the PA hospital every week, mm. every more every Thursday morning, and I sit there and they they sort of um, all the younger ones are there, and when somebody is giving a presentation of a case or something, and they mention you know this elderly person, sixty five, and I say please. <laughs> when is a person elderly? You know, and they all laugh and they know that. But I still go there and I still, and, and I, when the COVID thing came along, they shut down and I stopped going for a while. And I got a call from one of the, one of the fellows, surgical fellows, and he said, we've not seen you at Grand Rounds. And I said, oh, well, I said, I thought that stopped. No, he said, it's still going on. He said, we miss you. I said, well, yeah, I didn't think you were. He said, no. We need to hear about the good old of what it means and the, prog the the change that's occurring and also your views about what we're doing now and whether that's progressive or regressive or what. I felt better because he said that, but it made one think, hang on, maybe they do want to listen to somebody with a different perspective. Yeah. Um, whether the profession in the future, I mean, you can... You can make statements, and I don't know whether I, I know. I'm disappointed with a lot of the statements that come out from the various things and in the profession and what happens. And, you know, there was apparently a program. I didn't see it on Four Corners this last week on the ABC. I don't watch. I go to bed early. Um, and it was on uh, cosmetic surgery. Right. And, and, and they were saying, oh, this horrific, and this surgeon and taking fat and doing all this sort of thing. And, you know, one of them who's a, a nurse, she said, oh, I could hardly watch it. it. was, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, I was asked to go on a committee. It actually is now 10 years ago yeah. on cosmetic surgery practice. And we visited clinics in Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne. And we wrote a report, which was, for, and it was actually for APRA, the Australian Health um, yes. Practice, whatever review. Anyhow, and it was actually a 85-page um, publication that we did, which went to APRA, and suddenly was one of the surgeons in Melbourne wrote how he was sick and tired of having to fix up people who'd had yeah. operations by cosmetic surgery places around to fix up the complications that were occurring. Yes. And I thought, oh, what happened to that? So I started to investigate. Well, isn't it interesting? Nobody seemed to know anything about it. Um, eventually, somebody found it in a drawer somewhere that we had made certain recommendations that were never actually instituted. And so you thought, 
but what the heck? What a waste of time. I mean, I knew a bit about it when we, one of the things we went, I think it was in um, Sydney, where when we went in to view this place, there was a Rolls Royce and a Bentley in the garage, which probably gave us a biased perception. Yeah. But I think it was true. I mean, what, what I'm saying here is that you, you sometimes do something or you're asked to do something and you do it all and then it gets put in a drawer somewhere and it's never eventually. Apparently, it went to the minister. They'd refused to accept it and wanted to review. After four, in 2004, it went to the minister and nothing else ever happened. And when you try and do things like this, for example, I've written to the two successive ministers, federal ministers for education, Tian and Tudge. I've never received even a reason to say we've, we've received your thing and we're not going to, not even a recognition that they've received it. And it was partly with regard to universities and their acceptance of overseas students yes. and the fee-making, fee-paying thing and how at the moment they're in terrible trouble because there's no overseas coming in and there they are and they're having to reduce staff and everything else. Yeah. And so I refused to go to the Emeritus Professor's Lunch here in Brisbane on the basis that they're in dire straits. And I said, yeah. I'm not coming. Why should I come to this when you're in dire financial trouble because you're not getting overseas students? And I've, you know, so, so I said, I refuse to come. You should stop this as part of your program to save money. However, nothing's ever happened. So when you say, and you're right here, this is one thing, yeah. as an individual, you don't seem to have any leeway. You don't yeah. seem to have any power to do anything else. But if you keep making chips and noise and things, mm. suddenly somewhere along the line, somebody said, hang on, this guy might have something here. We, might, we must do something about it. So I am continuing to, I pledge that I'm continuing to nibble away at our federal politicians who actually, they've had this, they had three years ago, they had this inquiry. I won't go into it. It was a shambles as far as I, I was never asked to go on it. There were certain people asked to go on that who should never have been on it. However, the federal government had this about this very subject of execution of dissidents in China and organ harvesting and transplant. And they came up with, oh, yes, we agree. However, they've more or less said, you know, we mustn't upset them. Mm. And there's supposed to be a report come out. How often have you seen our foreign minister? She ain't anywhere. She made a statement like, oh, we're, we're considering the implications for our economy. Means we mustn't upset them. And I mean. I don't I even remember who it is. I don't remember who it is right? after Julie Bishop. I remember Julie Bishop. No. Payne is the name. Maurice Payne. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. she's the current um, uh, foreign minister. But this is all we oh, we don't want to upset them, you know. Oh, we've got so much money involved, uh, you know. So money comes before humanity. Uh, well, thank you. That's why you're on the show, because I've noticed that you've been speaking out. So thank you for doing that and encouraging other people too. Let me ask you my final question. If I gave you a magic wand... How would you fix the entire world with that magic wand? <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. <clears throat> the entire world. Keep in mind, oh, your answer no. to such a question reveals a lot about your character. 
how you would wield such a powerful device. No, I, I don't think. I, I think it's impossible for one person to rule the whole world. There's so many different parts, geographically, culturally, economically, etc., that there's no one answer to them all. Mm. Um, I mean, when you look again at China and think, well, hang on, they are the biggest pollution emitters. Mm. They have the largest fishing of anywhere in the world. Mm. They have 800,000 distant fishing fleet. America wow. has 20,000. Wow. They can actually throw a net out yep. and bring in the size of fish that would cover, I think it's four or five rugby fields yeah, yeah. or AFL fields you know, and that sort of thing. Timber-wise, the biggest in the world, but not their own. South America, mm. Congo, they're mm. demolishing all mm. this. Um, so they're doing all that. And you think, well, hang on, that's their country. Now what about this other country and that country? Little mm. bits and pockets. So I don't think one gives the individual countries the right to be able to do it. And we know that's not always good when we see some of the atrocities, particularly at the moment in Africa and et cetera, mm. and Myanmar, et cetera. I don't know who, I don't know what the right answer is. The human race is obviously pretty nasty people and have been always. Mm. Mm. Uh, we are. Which is sad, isn't it? Because there, there's so many nice people and wonderful people out there. Yes, but the uh, those who are not willing to see that at our core we're pretty base and uh that's to be defended and guarded against don't exactly. assume yes exactly exactly if we let if we let china run this planet uh i don't think any side of politics will be happy they're not far from it at the moment sadly they're not far from it uh, and Professor, i think that's but it's partly an indictment on us the western absolutely. nations because we have agreed to what they're doing oh because of money we've agreed mm. and if you look at the german the German thing, they, they've actually come out the, 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 uh, in Germany and said along the lines of, please, economy is much more important than these mm. moral issues. Mm. And we've got big business. And they actually supply most of the machinery, uh, which the Uyghurs course, yeah. in their concentration camps are making all these in the slavery. Uh, and that's so Germany. <laughs> You'd think they'd have woken up, wouldn't you, after the Holocaust? Uh, well, you're about to go uh, social media famous because of this interview and the many segments that will follow, Professor. I, not that you will know. I just because, say this I, yeah. I'm not sure. I don't do social media. Exactly. I mean, you've done this. I have no idea what it means. I keep hearing about Twitter and uh, all these things. I don't do it. So am I going to be bombarded with abuse now on this, this <laughs> channel? What not, happens? Not not from our channel. This channel is particularly good. This is, uh, as you've experienced, very open-minded conversation. No, it's just that there'll be hundreds of thousands of people watching the words that you've given today. I think it's been very wise. In fact, I'm going to end the show with a quote by you. You said, Ooh. yes, you said, some men are born too soon. Uh, you've stolen it from someone, which is fine. Yes, some yeah, that's right. Some men are born too soon and some men are born too late and others are born at just the right time. Yep, that's that's true. I, that's plagiarism, and I I should be able. To, I usually keep all these. I've got thousands of quotes, and I always recognise the person who originally said it. So I should know that, and I can't think it, it wasn't Churchill, but with somebody of prominence like Winston Churchill. 
Well, it's been an honor to talk about your life, being born at the right time, achieving some things uh, in your life, which are miraculous in some people's views, in my view. Uh, and I hope that I too have um, been starting to be finding my groove and hopefully I'm born at the right time and I can have an effect on the world as well. So thank you very much for coming on and sharing about it's all right. um, this. You're this is This is a... I just can't get over what we talked about. This China problem is so far beyond the usual. Oh, you don't like China. Oh my goodness. Hear it from a Chinese man. It's scary. No, it's I, terrible. We've got to no, do something. No, that's what's sad. That's what's sad. I mean, as I say, I've got so many good friends who are ch of Chinese race, not yeah. necessarily from mainland China per se, but as I said, in many countries. So, you know, it's not a racist thing for me. It's what's happening there. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Professor. Goodbye. Yes. I support you and what you're trying to do with the People's Project and Discernible generally is that we don't have enough discussion in Victoria and Australia generally. You know, everything's cut down to a 30 second grab on, on the primetime news or a, I'm someone who likes to communicate, get out and meet people. Mm. And this is an opportunity to do it and you do a great job. So thanks. Thank you, Richard.